you know, it didn't need, I think it needed only kind of fewer than a thousand people to pledge for the book for it to be fully funded. And I was like, no problem, no problem. That'll be easy. Listeners, it was not easy. Welcome to We Can't Print This. It's a podcast telling you the story you don't know behind the story you do know. I'm Eden Vaughn. And my name is Fiona McCann. And every week we interview a writer of some kind or another about the stories behind their stories. And if you like our podcast, do us a little favor, send it to a friend who you think would like it. Or you can support us um, over on Patreon at patreon.com slash we can't print this. That's right. And this week we're having a lovely catch up with my former colleague, Rosemary McCabe. Rosemary and I worked at the Irish Times together a long ways back. And since then, Rosemary has gone on to co-host a very successful and I think hilarious podcast called Not Without My Sister. She also moved to America just like me, though to Indiana, which I have learned is very different from Portland. She launched a Substack <laughs> called Anchor Baby and had an actual baby and she wrote a book. It's a memoir, to be clear. See what she did there? Because wow. it's about what she learned about herself from all her ex-lovers and it's called This Is Not About You. Great title. It's a great title. It's a very good title. Yeah. Memoir. And as I tried to call her, the Carrie Bradshaw of Indiana. <laughs> Which I think is fair. In Ireland. She's bo- both. She's Carrie Bradshaw She's of Carrie them. Bradshaw of everywhere except New York, because there is a Carrie Bradshaw yep. of New York. Facts. Facts. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that was so interesting talking to Rosemary, because obviously this book was about a lot of real people all her ex-lovers or they if not about them god it's like the title didn't even get stuck in my head it wasn't about them but they're all in there and so um her publishing company had her run it by legal counsel because libel laws in the uk and ireland are pretty strict Mm -hmm. which i don't understand because i feel like your tabloids are very aggressive and i and i'm not sure how they get away with that stuff I mean, it's it's confusing to me, too. All I know is that um, you can sue pretty easily for defamation over there, and everybody's really careful. Yeah. Well, good. I mean, you, but then tabloids. I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. It's complicated. Uh, but definitely, um, I thought it was interesting hearing her talk about the kind of things that lawyers picked up or didn't pick up and how they decide what is okay to publish, as in won't get you sued. And what isn't. And it's always the stuff you don't think. Yeah, it's so weird. I've gone through that process of having my book go through legal and which is a weird thing, even just because for like rewrite travel guide books. But I remember going through our big um, our top tier publishers, Penguin Random House. And so like we went through their legal team and came back to us, which is also great. I want to say great because you want to make sure that you're doing everything on the up and up but like they were like you need to go to this museum and get sign off from them because my husband illustrated a sketch of a deer statue where they're like but then other things where we fully illustrated like Darcel, our favorite drag queen in the universe we that put was her not- face in they're like yeah that's good but the deer was a problem. But the deer was a problem. Wow. I, see, you have, I have no idea. This is why I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. That's I, the only reason you're not a lawyer, as we know. Just I, that one just reason. That one. Just that one reason, because I don't know what I'm talking about. You have a, a very famous story. I know that you, well, maybe you don't want to get into the details, but I know you had to do a lot with the legal team because of undercovering this. Uh, Yes, a very very, uh, high profile story where an individual was accused of uh, sexual misconduct 
Um, That's the which phrase was we're going with. Okay. The phrase also approved by the legal team. Okay. And uh, it was, I mean, honestly, it was in some ways the most frightening story I've ever written because of the legal resources at the disposal of this individual. So mm-hmm. there's there's one thing to kind of write about somebody who's just a home ordinary individual yeah. who could sue you, but like what resources do they have to bring to us? This is somebody who's going to like level full power on us. Versus a very, very powerful, wealthy person yeah. with a number of accusers. Yes. So we had to be so, so careful. And there's a certain amount of care you already have in journalism. And I'm sure you've had it as well, where people, I'm sure, read some of our work and they're like, how many times can you say allegedly in one (laughs) article? And we have to do that. We have to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason for it. It's, It's somebody, if somebody is not convicted of a crime, we have to be very careful about we all we can say is like this, you know, this is an allegation. They are accused of this. Until that judge hits gavel, gavel, bung, bung and says you're guilty. We have to say allegedly. And e- we have to be very careful. And I do think even in Ireland, it was even like one level up or it seemed like it was one level up. You had to be very careful that you weren't prejudicial to the trial. So often we wouldn't even write about something until, the tri- you know, it's just very careful. Mm. But, uh, and I think you have to be careful here too as well. I don't want to make it sound like everyone's sloppy over here. They don't care. But I do think uh, it can read really strangely to people because literally every sentence you have to take care with. Like you can't yeah. say anything as a statement without making clear that this is an accusation from somebody or some individual or this is you know, reportedly, or mm-hmm, all of mm-hmm. these words that every time you see those littered throughout a piece, just know that the journalist is doing their best, but they're trying to make sure they don't get the whole publication sued. Which can be very difficult because, you know, in a case like yours where, you know, I know you believe those women and you still have to take great care. You how you How so you're writing about it has not been confirmed in a court of law. <laughs> And Even now to, I'm being so careful with I how we know. talk about things. Well, and I, you have to be careful sometimes to protect the accusers too. So when you're, you're not just trying to make sure that you protect your publication from being sued or that you protect your own individual reputation in case something goes wrong along the way, but also that you protect those who are there because you don't want a story so discredited that mm-hmm. their truth is then discredited along with it. Or you don't want them to have to be dragged into a messy, lengthy legal proceeding, which might be re-traumatizing in so many ways. Yes, of course, so, being responsible for people. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's the thing that like keeps you up at night with all of these things. I mean, thankfully, thankfully, there are so many amazing legal teams who will go through this. They've been around the block. They know exactly what they're doing. They yeah. go through it line by line. They'll be like... Dear illustration, out. Go get permission. Dear, which is on the same tier as all the other things yeah. that do. But, you know, in the case of Rosemary's, which she'll talk about, I do understand that they say that in a romantic relationship, people have some right to privacy. And I, I see how there is that line of you trying to be like, well, this part is my lived experience. And I want to be able to write about my lived experience, which we're allowed to do. But, you know being mindful of like, well, it's not just mine. It's this other person and they have some right because they didn't consent to this being written about, you know, and trying to change identities or remove those things. Yeah, it's not easy. We're all yeah. just doing the best we can. And this is why she anonymizes so all of the individuals, which is really complicated for me because I spent so long trying to figure out who they all were. <laughs> and 
didn't get there. So well done, lawyers, and well done, anonymous. Well done, lawyers. With that, let's move on to our interview. So it came out on July. I should remember July 7th. It came out at the start of July. It's not getting a physical US release, so it's available in the US only on ebook. Okay. But the actual, well, I mean, you can order the physical copy from Amazon through third party UK or Irish or European sellers, but it's not in any bookshops here or available, you know, from Barnes and Noble or whatever. But if I am okay. not mistaken, it went straight to the top of the Irish charts. Is this correct? It it went to, yeah, it went to number one in the nonfiction charts in week one, which is amazing. Yeah, it was great. And then That's it promptly the- fell right off. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Number one, you can put that on your next book. Number one, and bought by all of the gentlemen featured therein. Yes. I mean, I would presume so. I would, if I was them. No, it's very clever because not only them, but also any man who ever dated you is going to buy that book to see if he's in it. So wait, can you give an overview of the book for people listening? And the Americans who have not been able to get their, their hands on a physical copy as of yet. Yeah. Okay. So... I just wrote a memoir called This Is Not About You. It's a memoir told through my dating history. So it starts with my very first boyfriend in, I think when I was in like pre-K or something, or you know, who I thought was my boyfriend, and then goes through my relationships up to now, um, up to when I met my husband and moved to the US where I now live. And the reason, I mean, I actually never thought I was going to write a memoir. I just had kind of over my career done a lot of personal nonfiction kind of maybe creative nonfiction and I started writing down these stories about different relationships I'd had and I realized that they kind of told the story of my life because as well to be honest I place so much emphasis on these relationships throughout my life mm-hmm. I really focused on them above and beyond a lot of other things above and beyond work and college and I really prioritized the men that I was dating for good or for ill and I felt like it told a kind of an interesting story about being a woman, um, I suppose, born and growing up at a certain time, probably being a straight woman, being in heterosexual relationships with straight men. And actually, the reaction has kind of proved that because I've got so many messages from people going, oh, my God, I dated a Frank or I dated a Johnny. Or I mean, from some people saying I dated actual Johnny or. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like if you look back at the men I have dated over my life and then you tried to add them up to me, there's no equation there that makes sense in any way. No, no. I mean, I I used to joke that like I didn't have a type because I just fancied everyone, but it's not really a joke because it's completely true. Like there's, (laughs) there's no through line between the men that I've dated. And there's also, I mean, the book very clearly spells out the fact that there were no lessons learned throughout either like I was just waiting to kind of be lucky enough to meet somebody who wasn't a dickhead I wasn't kind of looking at oh you know I recognize that red flag from last time every single man I dated got a blank slate I forgot every single thing I'd ever done everything I'd ever learned and I went you're my true love you know what I mean it was it was it was quite uh, confronting to write it all down it I mean I was going to ask you about that process and how it was for you because I think in the epilogue you kind of talk about the positives of having put all that together in some ways, I balk at the kind of honesty required to write something like that. I mean, how does it feel for you now? Or how did it feel at the time where you're like, oh, my God, I was such an idiot and I've only realized that now? Or were you like, um, I look, you know what? I tried to be forgiving as I was writing it down. I really was an idiot. And I think the worst thing was I knew I was being an idiot the whole time. 
I wasn't worried that anybody else thought I was an idiot until I wrote it down and it was published. And then I was like, oh God, everyone's going to know. But like the book did go through a few iterations. So I think the first version that I wrote of it was really the kind of version that I would tell my girlfriends over drinks to go, oh my God, you'll never guess what happened last night. I went out with this guy and this happened and this happened. But as I was writing it down, I really had to kind of dig through all of the entertainment and all of the storytelling to find what was the truth and what was like what were the actual affecting moments if I'm if I'm not trying to make this experience entertaining or amusing and I'm actually just admitting the fact that it really affected me or really upset me or it really I suppose damaged me in some way or that you know it was amazing what does that story look like so it did take me it was kind of like peeling an onion you know what I mean it took a few layers to get to where it needed to go Healing an onion. I love that analogy. As you say, you know, it made you confront yourself, but it is also entertaining. And like, I confess, I love a good, you know, bad date story. As yeah. Oh, yeah. Well testified. That's her. She has written several books about dates, but also has a whole event called Bad Dates. And it t- turns out they're so popular. People telling their bad date stories. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I can well imagine. But like, I think that's why I thought this would make a good book as well, that I was like, these are all the stories that that I want to hear about. They're the stories that my friends want to hear about. And they're the stories that I love telling because they I mean, date stories just say so much about human behavior, about our expectations of our romantic partners, about our expectations around sexual intercourse and even like just kind of, you know, kissing, touching any kind of like sexuality related events it's so fascinating to see people's different interpretations and then as well I suppose to see how similar we all are and how many you know how kind of grimly predictable we are in a lot of ways in our behaviors around those kinds of things yeah we're all Egypts that's the thing (laughs) well yeah we're all Egypts and it's a universal experience to have had your heart broken or to be disappointed by a romantic partner or be the person disappointing someone as a romantic partner that is the thing that is crossed like culture socioeconomic status queer straight like everybody has had a bad date or a bad relationship and most of us have not learned from it if we're being really honest (laughs) I truly think the only people who have learned from their bad relationships are the people featured on the show Jewish matchmaking because they just have such a firm idea of, of who they want to be with and like the things that they won't put up with and the things that they expect and I you know honestly I wish I think that show should be shown to all young people to go oh this God. is this it is how to approach dating very un-irish I oh have to ab- say. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> completely complete opposite yeah no not at all would you say that you are ireland's carrie bradshaw because i would like to start that right now um no 100%. sorry 100%. i don't even know why i hesitated there no i wouldn't well <laughs> i mean you I might... are and claire is miranda this is all true <laughs> oh my god i can't wait to tell her that um <laughs> Like, I think the similarities between me and Carrie Bradshaw, right, are that I've written about my dating life and she wrote about her dating life. But like, if you saw my wardrobe, there are way too many pairs of leggings, like only runners. Although I'm actually very, very bad at saving money. So we suppose we have that in common as well. <laughs> Look at that common ground again. That's what you do. You find common ground with people. I want to know when you set out to write this book, um, and I do want to hear about sort of the process of publishing as well a little bit later on. But when you set out to write this, I think a lot about writing about people I know. And then I get 
an attack of cowardice because I'm worried about what they'll think. And I wonder, mm. did you let people know you were going to write about them? Did you, I know you obviously changed some things to make sure that people were relatively anonymized, but like we're from Ireland, that's like almost impossible. Um, yeah, did you, true. did you let people know? Did you have any compunction? Were you like, oh, I don't know. Okay. So there were certain stages of this in a way. So when I first started writing it, I went, you know what, I'm just going to write down the stories. And I think my first draft, they all had their real names before I kind of even shown it to anyone. And it was all exactly how it happened. You know, which I mean, to a large extent, it's 99% exactly how it happened. There might be slight changes in location or date or, you know, if I knew somebody through a friend in the book, I might know them through a cousin. So I tried to change little kind of identifying parts as I went along. But at the very beginning, I just wrote about them as they were because I felt like to get the to get all the stories out of me because it did feel like a kind of a a purge of sorts that I was getting all of these experiences and stories and emotions out onto the page and I really hoped as I was writing it that I would experience some kind of cleansing some catharsis afterwards that I think I'm still waiting for but anyway you were vomiting your exes okay yes yes so I was just puking them all up like as it happened and then once we went into the publishing process we started to talk more about the legalities around basically exposing people to the public in that way when they are not public figures. So people have a certain expectation of privacy legally. I'm not sure that it's the same if I published in the US, but in the UK and Ireland, there's a certain expectation of privacy and people can take you to court for breaking that, but also if they could take you to court for defamation if they thought that I'd said something that wasn't true. And I mean, because a lot of it as well is from my point of view, I was very aware that a lot of these men are going to look at it and go, that's not how it happened or that's not how I thought it happened. So, you know, you are very much wrong. But anyway, oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah, this is the thing of every breakup of all time. Yeah, exactly. You ask both parties of what happened and you're going to get two very different. Yeah, they're absolutely never going to agree. I actually remember, I think I wrote about in the book during one breakup saying to a guy, when you tell people about this, you need to know it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) That is in the book. Good. Yeah, yeah, I've 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 never actually asked him if he does if he does tell people, but maybe nobody asks. But anyway, as we were going through it, so it went through a lawyer and the lawyer got back and basically said, yeah, this is really, you know, we're in really dangerous territory. A lot of these chapters cannot exist as is, even though the names have been changed. They're like, you're going to have to either. So there were two options. There were tell each person involved that I was writing the book and show them their chapter and get them to sign off on it. Oh, my God, that's terrifying. I know. And or change enough dates and characteristics and characters and details so that they're not identifiable to anyone outside of, say, the small circle of people who would have known us together. So there were a handful of men in the book who did get sent their chapters. And by a handful, I think I mean three. My husband being one of them. Oh, sorry. Well, Liam, yes, Liam did, but he's the only, well, he and Brandon, my husband, are the only men in the book who who get their real names. Because Liam and I, are still best friends and I think for him like his chapter he comes off very well because he's a lovely guy and nothing horrific happened and there was nothing I mean aside from him like letting me do more laundry than he did which is always horrific but you know there was nothing particularly egregious so I mean that's a criminal offense right there but well listen (laughs) division of labor I think there should be some kind of comeback for that but anyway uh, can so, I ask a question about option one before we move yes. past it? So option one was to reach out to your exes. How many of them were you on speaking terms with? Or how many people were you potentially writing about that you have not spoken to? I mean, I have people that I think about 
having broken up with, not having spoken to for 10 years, just getting an email from me one day. Hey, hey, I wrote out all of our drama here. And would you sign off on this? I can't imagine. Okay, I'm just going to take a quick look at the book. And I'll tell you. Out of this list, I am still in touch with four men. Out of how many? Uh, out of 16. 17 if, you count a, 17 if you count a brief interlude to Gran Canaria where I hooked up with a, with a nice British man. And obviously that's not including all the exes you left out. Or the no, 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 no. Yeah. There's no yeah, place big enough for that book. But anyway. <laughs> I know. And you know what? There were a few stories that I went, oh, this is a good story. I could include this. But then I was going, it actually is not significant in the grand scheme of things. It's just like another guy who behaved kind of poorly, but also gave me some amusing anecdotes, but it kind of didn't feel relevant. Well, actually, I'm still in touch on a regular basis with three of them. Liam, my husband and Scott. That's his name in the book. And then there's another guy towards oh, yeah, the very Scott. beginning of the book. Scott was the long relationship. Scott was the five-year yeah. relationship, yeah. And there's another guy towards the beginning of the book whose name I honestly can't remember what name he got. I think it was Sean, maybe. Anyway, there's a guy, my college boyfriend, who we went out with for three years. He moved to Australia. And we're not in touch, but I still had his email address and we left it on good terms. So I emailed him, like I emailed him to let him know I was writing the book and I asked him, could I send him his chapter? And I sent it to him and he said, yeah, that's fine. Only one of them came back with two things that he said, you know what, I'm not really comfortable with these things being in it. And what's interesting to me was they were not at all the things that I thought somebody would pick up on. It was like, mm. it was more like he was picking up on things that he was going, oh, that makes me look a bit bad. It wasn't anything personal. It wasn't anything sexual. It was just him going, oh, people are going to think I'm a bit of a loser, <laughs> which was interesting to me. Oh, but of course you can't tell us those things because they've been removed from the book. And immediately I'm like, what were they? Yeah, so me too. My you made my ears look big or something. I don't know. Like, I mean, oh. honestly, they were so minor as to be like, it's the kind of thing I would have read over in a book and not even remembered. You know what I mean? Mm. But I think when you're reading about yourself, you're obviously much more sensitive. And I think it was something that I hadn't realized he was sensitive about that. He was like, oh, no, I don't want that in. Um, I had an ex once tell a bunch of people after we broke up that um, I was sloppy with salsa that I would spill salsa when I had chips. And I don't know why, but it incensed me. I was like, so I was like, I don't spill salsa. What are you talking about? That's a sociopath behavior, <laughs> spilling salsa. The smallest thing, people are like, why are you just, this is nothing. But that also feels nothing. like a super petty thing to tell someone about someone else. It was such a strange thing. But again, it was one of those things where my friends are like, you need to get over this girl. Like that yeah, is yeah. not in the grand scheme of life. No one cares. Even if you did spill salsa, it doesn't make you a bad person. It's not like you're kicking puppies, but it was yeah. just, you know, it, it is that thing when it comes to exes that you're, you just have like weird sensitivities about. Yeah. And now I'm very mindful with my salsa. I so. was just about to say, I'd say you think about it all the time now. Like whenever <laughs> you have salsa, I'd say it's like, better not spill this. Can't prove him right. Okay, so you sent it to them and they wanted to change small things, but they didn't say anything like, can you make me better in bed? Or can no, you no, only, make my oh, penis larger? Or <laughs> no, I don't think I really mentioned penis size at, at any stage. That doesn't really no, feel I like something that's important in, to me. I? You did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, Fiona's doing fan fiction with your book now already. <laughs> so yeah, only one of the four that I ran it by came back with any changes. And then everybody else I went through 
painstakingly. And I mean, because by the time I had sent the kind of final draft through to my publisher, I just did not want to see this book ever again. I didn't want to read through any of the chapters, but I had to go through with a fine tooth comb to go, okay, what in here is going to tip people off as to who this is? What makes them identifiable to anybody other than themselves? And change just uh, like, again, the smallest mundane details until it was kind of cleared to go, okay, I think we're, I think we're good. And have you heard subsequently to its publication from any of the people who had not received their chapters in advance? No. Just like, sorry. To let them know. No. Um, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned before that, yeah, that the that your lawyers kind of highlighted certain bits that might get you sued. And mm-hmm. you did tell me in advance that there were some particularly problematic, I think was the quote, about some of the content. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, well, yeah, I got a very professional lawyerly email um, to me and my editor basically detailing all of the parts that they felt were problematic. But one of the bits that they highlighted was like, this part might be particularly objectionable. And it was where I said, he really liked to come on my face about like a boyfriend I had when I was a teenager. And just to have that line written in an email, like that's very professional and very, you know, very to the point. And like, I think you'll find that this blah, blah, blah. And then like highlighting, he liked to come on my face. And I was like, well, he did. He did. Facts. Yes. Science. Yeah, me, That's listen. just science. Yeah, I would I would back back that up in court. I wonder why that bit was particularly problematic as well. Well, they were basically pointing out things that they felt were would have an expectation of privacy. So certain things that you could expect that wouldn't become public knowledge about your sex life. Oh, so, you know, bits where he... I said we went to the cinema or like we had sex, that was kind of like, you know what, people have sex. But if I'm saying we had sex and then he, like in another chapter, then he put his thumb in my bum unexpectedly, that's the kind of thing that they're like, that person is entitled for that not to be public knowledge. Because it might be identifiable, like people might be like, know him as the face comer of Dublin or something. And that is, I thought you were going to say is that it was going to be something identifiable. And I was like, wow, Ireland is getting, is just smaller than I realized. And everyone's like, oh, the face comer. Yes, yeah, there's, there's, on, there's only happened. one man in the whole of Ireland who likes to yeah. come on women's faces and he's in my book. We all know who he is. <laughs> Sadly, I'd say there's more than one, more than, more than a thousand, I'd say. Perhaps. It's porn. Perhaps. Stalled and porn. We never know now because we're married to Americans. Oh, uh, thank Rosemary, God. Can I ask you a question? Because this has been a topic of conversation in my life recently is, as I guess uh, Fiona and I particularly have had a few friends recently and kind of long-term relationship. And this conversation keeps coming up about if if a relationship, if people don't stay together forever, that it's a failure, which is the language I don't like because I think mm. that a relationship can be very valuable for a time yeah. And since you're writing a whole book about relationships that have ended, I guess I'm wondering what reflections or like if you that was something in the back of your mind as you were going through all, all of this. You know what? Kind of as I grew up and until probably recently enough, I would have viewed it like that because I would have thought, OK, I'm getting into a relationship because I want to be with this person and because I'm imagining that we will be together long term and to me long term did mean like we'll get engaged we'll get married we'll have our happily ever after and that'll be my only relationship and if it ended it did seem like a failure and I think it probably wasn't until I started writing about Liam's chapter where 
we had a year and a half relationship where we realized kind of probably at the year mark, we started to realize that we were more friends than anything else and that we had so much love for one another, but we weren't in love and there wasn't really a kind of a physical, sexual side to our relationship. And it wasn't until I started to write about that that I kind of went, oh, well, you know what, that definitely wasn't a failure and that definitely wasn't, you know, I don't look at that with regret at all because I got my best friend out of it and, you know, I definitely learned a lot about myself and about friendships and I suppose about like not seeing every single man as a potential love interest which something I'm probably still working on despite being married but writing the book I mean as well writing about Brandon has been really interesting that's my husband because obviously he comes at the end of the book right and when I first started writing the book we had just met so I was writing the book and it was going to be left very open-ended you know I wasn't married I wasn't kind of quote-unquote settled down or I didn't have my happy ever after whereas when I ended up publishing the book and when it went to print I was married and in a way I have a problem with I know (laughs) I know and I have a problem with how kind of neatly tied up in a bow it is at the end because it Mm. kind of gives the impression that that's how these things have to end and I also worry about like having written this chapter about him and how we met and you know how we fell in love and I don't think I make out that he's perfect, but I do make out that he's great. And I'm like, if this relationship ends for whatever reason, I worry that it will kind of affect how the book seems or like that the book will suddenly seem like it's not true because actually this relationship didn't work out, even though that's not how I would necessarily think about it. But I feel like the book, because like a lot of women have messaged me on Instagram and said, oh, I really love the book and it really gives me hope that they're like that my Brandon is out there. And I'm like, that's not really what I wanted to do. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like, I'm also like, Brandon's not that great. Like, he is great, but he also is not that great. None of them are that great. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're all normal humans. They're all grand. They're still, yeah. they're still yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because I'm immediately like, but sure, who would interpret it that way? Like, but I suppose people do. They're like, oh, look, this ended in a happy ending. And she got her miracle baby and her yeah. know, gorgeous, large-footed husband. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. But we're programmed for that. Like that's been every story we're given most yes. of our lives. That's yeah. the number the one conditioning story. has worked on us all. Yeah. My, Once my, upon a time, happily ever after. I know my friend who used to tell her children fairy tales would always end the, and they all lived happily ever after and continued to work on their relationship would be her last line with everything. Because she was like, it's not automatic. That's actually um, good. Yeah, yeah. So as Fiona mentioned earlier, I have a couple of books out where I write guidebooks of the best dates to go on with my husband. We co-write these books that are like, here are all the ways to go, like places to go to make out and have fun and be in love and do it. And uh, and Ashad is great and we love each other. But I do sometimes feel that pressure where I'm like, oh my God, even if we're in a fight, I'm like, oh, we have books out about yeah yeah having the best time the like level of pressure of just uh, uh associating your relationship or your personal self with your work in any way and yet I'm always drawn to people's work that is incredibly personal yeah so am I and I mean I've I've done personal writing like I you know in the very early days I wrote a blog now I have a newsletter on Substack and I write a lot of personal stuff about emigrating about America about the politics of America and how I interpret that if I can at all about just like my day-to-day life the fact that my neighbor called her dog after my baby stuff like that you know normal things that happen um wait hold on a second what oh yeah it's a lovely compliment 
But what I was going to say is writing so much personal stuff, it is really hard not to take criticism of my work as criticism of myself. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think I've been working on and failing at for years. Speaking of failure is, you know, because like a lot of the time people will just criticize something that I've written or some, you know, some opinion that I've shared. And it does feel incredibly personal. Whereas when I used to write about fashion and somebody would go, oh, I hated that shoot or like I hate those shoes or I really don't agree with you about the best shops to buy this you just be like grand like fine I do think that's fair though because you're writing about personal things I mean I think that's kind Mm. of a normal reaction and yet also it's very difficult not to write personal things because they're the things we're most driven to explore and put down on paper can I ask you a little bit about the route to publication with this book with this Mm -hmm. was a proposal before you'd written it you proposed it yeah well so I'd written I had started to write it as a series of letters to my exes and that was kind of my first that was the first concept so I think I had written maybe two or three of the letters and I pitched it to Unbound which is a UK based publisher that work on a crowdfunding model so that's that's the kind of idea behind Unbound and actually because I have so I have like 44,000 Instagram followers now because I have kind of a sizable enough Instagram following I thought that it would be really, really straightforward. I like I almost imagined that I would get it crowdfunded in a week because it was like, you know, it didn't need, I think it needed only kind of fewer than a thousand people to pledge for the book for it to be fully funded. And I was like, no problem, no problem. That'll be easy. Listeners, it was not easy. Yeah. It was very difficult. It is hard, I think, it is hard to get people to step up and, and put money behind things for sure. Yeah, yeah. And especially, I mean, with this project as well, there was no date at which they would get their book. So it wasn't like they were going, I'm going to pre-order, I'm going to get this in three months. It was like, I'm going to pre-order, I'm going to get it when it is written and edited and published. And from the date that the crowdfunding page went up to the date that they got the book, I think was three years. Wow. And and part of that was because, I mean, it took me probably three years to write it. A little bit of that was because I moved to America during the pandemic and everything went kind of haywire. And honestly, a lot of that was because after I had written a certain number of pages or when I'd finished a chapter, I almost needed to put my entire laptop in the freezer like Joey and, like Joey and friends and just walk away from it. Because I felt, <laughs> I mean, I found it really draining the process of writing it down. Certain chapters were harder than others, obviously. But just in kind of going over all of the, you know, like you'd kind of go over all these really big feelings that I felt throughout my life, whether it was in my teens or my 20s. And I just felt like I was experiencing it all and feeling it all all over again. And it was really, really exhausting. So I found it really hard to write. Whereas when I started writing it, I was like, this is going to be easy. I'm going to bang this out because this is all true stories. Like, and you know, how hard can it be to to write down? Exactly, exactly. I'm not going to have to do any research. I'm not going to decide halfway through that I don't like that character or I do like that character or that character needs to have more something because it was all just based on reality. But in the end, that was really difficult. Yeah, that level of emotional mining is not something we're set up to do. What like there's no other time in your life you might be processing something at a time. You might like you know whatever come older or run into an old ex and think about that. But to have to do those, sit down and go through your entire dating history, your entire love life, and kind of systematically dive back into it, those feelings, that moment, being in it, analyzing it. I just can't think of another time ever that you would have to do that in a lifetime other than if you're kooky enough to write a book about it, which is exactly what you did. Yeah, I mean, thankfully, it's not something that we do all the time, right? So tell me why you chose this 
process to publish a book and not just the typical like I'll go find an agent and I'll pitch them and they'll pitch a publisher like why did you choose the crowdfunding so, publisher you know what it seemed at the time it seemed like the easier route and that's honestly I mean I should probably come up with a better answer to this it doesn't make me sound bad but that, that's probably the main reason is that it seemed like the easier way so I had approached an agent and I had approached an editor like from a publishing house in Ireland and I'd approached the agent and sent her a sample of a few different pieces of my work and she had sent me back a really rather scathing reply basically saying that she didn't think my work was very good and that it was a bit like Emily Pine but not good and then this other bit was a bit like Paul Murray but not good and you know I should read their books to see how to write good stuff but really I wasn't good oh <laughs> um, god and that was very obviously disheartening and then the editor that I had sent it to had essentially said you know what I think this could be really great as a piece of fiction but there was something about whatever about mining my own experiences to tell my story, the idea of mining my own experiences to tell a story that would turn out to be fiction in which I would be kind of anonymized in the process and not get to actually stand up and say, no, that's actually my story. Felt like something that I didn't really want to do with a lot of these stories that I felt like I needed. I needed to be able to say, yeah, that happened to me. Not just like, oh, this is a funny story because I felt like I'd spent so long turning them into funny stories and trying to make them entertaining that I didn't really want to do that anymore just with these particular stories. Yeah. So after both of those, like after the agent rejection, I was just, I mean, that probably took me a good year to even approach anybody with anything after that. And then after I approached the editor, I really balked at the idea of turning it into fiction. And I felt like with Unbound, because I had I had supported a few projects of theirs before, so I knew of of the whole process and of the company. And I felt like with them, I would have a better chance of writing what I wanted to write as long as I could guarantee the support through the um through the supporters of you know at the crowdfunding stage mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it felt like Unbound would give me the opportunity to prove that there was actually an appetite for this kind of non-fiction work rather than trying to turn it into fiction or mold it into something else that I didn't really feel like I wanted to do also think how stoked those people were after three years to get their book but I like the idea of being able to get behind an author's book proposal like that part mm -hmm. seems really mm -hmm. fun that early in the creative process to see somebody yeah. being like here's what I'm thinking of doing and going oh yeah I really support that I like yeah. that bit yeah I mean it, it kind of felt to me like a way of going because you know in publishing they'll go you know what's doing really well right now is like kind of you know murder mystery type like a girl on a train woman in the window that kind of thing it feels to me like something like this is a way of going well yeah but actually we could also be interested in this we don't need to just keep publishing the things that we know are doing well we can also yeah. take a risk but I also understand if you're a big publishing company and you're working in terms of advances and everything you don't want to take a big risk you want to work on what's guaranteed to, to sell and then from the author point of view with Unbound so how it works is you don't get an advance like you would with a traditional publisher but you do get a higher share of sales. So with all this experience of kind of mining your own personal life, love life, sex life for uh, your first book, you are now firmly switching to fiction. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? I hope like never I'm to done write. with this reading shit. Yeah, I hope not to write any personal nonfiction. Well, you no, you know what? I like, I write personal nonfiction every other day for my newsletter and that's kind of my bread and butter and that's what I do for a living right now I I'm not working to I'm not looking to write any more non-fiction books 
basically yeah. because a i don't want to write any more about myself and if we're talking non-fiction in terms of research i don't want to do a huge amount of research so it looks like i don't think i'll be doing any more non-fiction <laughs> those are solid reasons those are absolutely solid reasons um, oh, rosemary well, thank you so much oh thank yeah. you for having me 